and see you for who you truly are. We ask now, Lord, that you pour out your spirit upon us and that we would see you afresh this morning, just like this man who was born blind saw you. And that, Lord, in seeing, we might not only believe, but worship. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you well know, we're spending this whole fall walking through the major events of John's gospel, the biography of Jesus through the eyes of John the disciple. And today we arrive at this most famous passage where Jesus heals a man who's always been blind his whole life. He doesn't know what it's like to see. And it's a fascinating conversation that we didn't have read for us between verses 8 and 34 because it's there you have an encounter with the Pharisees and we're going to learn from them. And so what we learn from these three groups of people this morning there are three great truths. Number one, we learn about the truth of human suffering from the disciples. From the Pharisees, we learn the truth of spiritual blindness And through the blind man, we learn what spiritual sight looks like. All right? So let's look at these, shall we? Open up with your Bibles to John chapter 9. You can find it in the back of your bulletins. Or you can open it up on your device. In other words, open your Bible. Right? All right. The disciples. Let's learn from the disciples first. Verse 2. They're asked the question, which is in the elephant in the middle of the room. They ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because that's what often we think, right? When bad things happen to us, Lord, what did I do to deserve this type of thought? And it was prevailing in Jewish culture. Not everybody believed this, but it was prevailing for centuries. As a matter of fact, some rabbis taught that we could sin in the womb. Therefore, what we were going through was our fault, going back even when we were in the womb. And so, it always had been there. You reap what you sow. God is a judge, and if you have bad circumstances, somewhere in your past, there's someone, something to blame for it. And quite frankly, in our culture, we believe that in some ways too. You know it. We sing about it. Right? It's uh, Captain Von Trapp and the sound of music dancing in in the canopy with Maria. And they realize they love each other so much. And there they are dancing And somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Right? What's the implication of that? That if you said, if bad things were happening to you, you really must have messed up in the past, somewhere along the line. And this is terrible, friends. It's a terrible way to view life. And Jesus is calling this bluff, if you will. Number one, it creates a tremendous amount of spiritual pride and self-righteousness for the people who believe that. So that when they see other people that are going through difficulties, they say, well, man, they must have done something bad. They should have done this instead of that. Therefore, this is the situation. And it couldn't happen to us because we're not like that. 
You hear that? Some people would never say that often, but they would think that. And secondly, you know it's not true, right? There are plenty of wonderful people who are disciples of Jesus Christ and have had awful things happen to them. And there are evil people who live terribly immoral lives. They're absolute scoundrels, and yet they live a charmed life. Health, wealth, and happiness, and they die happily ever after in their sleep. And Jesus rejects this idea totally when he says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. So if we're going to understand human suffering and difficulties, you need to look at the entire word, the counsel of the word of God. And some of you may remember this text when we were walking through Luke a year and a half ago, Luke 13. Jesus addresses the same concept with the Tower of Siloam. His disciples come up and ask him, what about those guys who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on him? What does that mean, Jesus? When physical disabilities happen, sickness, natural disasters, man-made disasters. We see this issue also in Job's friends. Remember that? Job's friends said, oh, you must have done something bad, Job, to deserve this. But in Luke 13, Jesus adds, no, repent, unless you likewise perish. So here's God's view of suffering. He's drawing on the Bible in both Genesis 3 and Romans 8. The Bible says God did not originally create the world as we know it now. We and our first parents rebelled against God. We decided we wanted to do life our way, deciding what was good and evil for ourselves, and therefore, ever since, the world's been broken. Suffering occurs. Death occurs. And therefore, there's a sense in which the human race is getting the world that it deserves. We turn from God and we have a world that doesn't work right. Therefore, sin in general from the human race causes suffering in general. That's why Jesus says, repent, because we all deserve to have towers fall on us. We must never say those bad people who had the tower fall on them. This, that blind guy, he must have done something bad. No, we need to repent because we all deserve to have towers fall on us. That's the world we have. And yet, Jesus at the same time denies that individual suffering is caused by individual sin. He rejects that outright, just like he does in Luke 13, just like he does in Job. So the implications and the application for each and every one of us is that when we suffer, and we will, we don't decline into self-pity, anger. We don't get angry at God, because on one hand, we know that this world is filled with this. On the other hand, when bad things happen, we don't beat ourselves up for saying, I must have done something bad. I didn't learn the catechism when I should. I didn't memorize John 3.16 as I should. I shouldn't pray. No, stop. 
Jesus says, why is this man born blind? He doesn't directly answer him. What does he say? Verse 2, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 38. All things work for the glory of God that are called according to his purpose. My family knows this. Kimmy's brother Chuck, as I've shared with you often, was a hard young man. He was 15, 16 years old, wore a diaper, and would poop in it just to tick you off. Because he knew you had to clean it. Because he wasn't going to clean himself, because he couldn't. He was violent. He would bite you. And he would pull hair. Now, he couldn't pull my hair. But he could pull his sisters, who had this beautiful, thick, auburn hair. And Celeste had similar hair. And Kessie had light, blonde hair. And I just remember him grabbing them and pulling them down and their head hitting the ground first. What did we do, Lord, to deserve this? Why is he like this? And as that nut job Christian neighbor of ours said, when they said to Carol, that boy isn't healed yet? She said, how do you know God hasn't healed him so that he might demonstrate the glory of God through him? And I'll tell you how Chuck has demonstrated the glory of God. Kim, Celeste, and Kesty are all walking with the Lord, doing wonderful work for the Lord in Raleigh, North Carolina, Avon Lake, Ohio, and in Colorado. See, when you have a biblical view of suffering, it's the only way you can get through it, really. Instead of asking, why did this, this happen to me, Lord? Who's to blame here? We begin to ask, Lord, where are you at work here? What are you up to? How might you show your glory through this situation? And it leads you to begin to ask vertical questions rather than horizontal ones. And that's where we need to live. That's what we learn from the disciples. Second, we learn from the Pharisees what, about spiritual blindness. Because they come along and they say, and again, I encourage you to read this, this section this afternoon. They come along to the blind man and they say, wait, this guy, Jesus did this? Really? He did this? He says, yeah, they did. So he go, they go to his parents. Was he really blind from birth? Yeah, he was really blind from birth. And they're enraged with Jesus. How could this be? They're spiritually blind. So just like Jesus offered the woman at the well living water for her spiritual thirst, and just like he offered the bread of heaven to the 5,000 last week for their spiritual hunger, he's offering sight for this spiritually blind man. And this teaches us about the ability of Jesus to deal with our spiritual blindness. How? What is it and how do you know? Well, I think on one hand, when we talk about spiritual blindness, we need to understand there's something when we use that word that bl blindness is not always literal. 
we're all blind to things in our lives. You know, and I have a great experience lately to, to, to share. You know, if you've seen my friend Mark Butler down the hall, the pastor at Anchor Church, a year ago, I, I, I had a meeting with a couple weeks, and I go, Mark, you look good. You really do. You've lost a lot of weight. He goes, yeah, I just came to the realization I need to, I can't live this way. Went to the doctor, and you know, blood pressure was up, you know, everything. I, I felt awful. I just need to eat better and exercise a little. And I see Mark and his family riding his bikes by my house often. It's wonderful. But it's interesting. It was a concept of physical health that he had before. That's all it was. It was an abstract thought. But he came to the realization, and that's the key word, the realization that he had to change. It really got to him. Therefore, we could talk about sight as literally seeing things, but we need to understand when Jesus is using this metaphor, it's about sight as a perception of reality. All right? Because Jesus says, I can give you eternal life. That means we're dead. (laughs) Spiritually dead. We're physically alive and we're physically seeing, but we're spiritually dead until he gives us life and we're spiritually blind until he gives us sight. Because they all go together. So what does it mean to get our spiritual sight? It means that the Holy Spirit has to open our eyes to the two realities that we have to see. We have to see the reality of our sin and the reality of his grace. And the Pharisees are a beautiful, perfect, ugly example of this. They summon that poor blind man and his parents and they come back and they're talking to the blind man after they talk to his parents and they say, we know this man Jesus is a sinner. Whether he's, and he says the famous word, it is, this guy is sharp. He goes, whether this man's a sinner or not, I don't know, but this I do know. I was blind, now I see. So they ask him, well, how did he do it? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you, and you won't listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Notice the sarcasm. So they hurl insults at him. You're his disciple. We're the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And then this guy, this is tremendous rhetoric. He says, well, that's rich. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. God doesn't listen to sinners. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so they respond to him, you're steeped in sin. How dare you lecture us? Then they cast him out. Meaning, they excommunicated him. He can never go to the synagogue again. He can never go to temple again. They've thrown him out. That's spiritual pride. We're disciples of Moses. How dare you lecture us? See, when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, it's not like you didn't know that there was nothing wrong with you. In fact, there are plenty of people who go to church each and every week and they will acknowledge that they're sinners. 
yeah, I'm flawed. But it's only when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to realize that we're totally sinful does it really become real to us. It moves from concept or abstraction to a reality. You begin to see the depth of deception of your selfish motives. You begin to see that you've taken good things and you made them ultimate things. And when the Holy Spirit enables you to see that these things aren't as they should be in our lives, there's a desire to change. There's a desire to recognize, you know, I'm not in control of my life. And I really never have been. Even the motives for the good things that I've done are are terrible. And you spiritually start to see, I thought I was in control, and now I see I never was. And I've made a mess of things. And I'm driven by my fears and my affections. This isn't the way it should be. That's conviction. And this means you may have agreed that you were a sinner in some kind of a general way before, but now it comes home and it becomes real. And you can see. And when sin becomes real, grace becomes real. It's bright. It's beautiful. It's phenomenal. And it changes you. This is absolutely critical for us to understand. Have you had that spiritual sight given to you? Almost anybody who has spiritual sight knows that to some degree in their past, they were spiritually blind. And notice at the very end of the passage in verse 39 to 41 that Sybil read for us, Jesus is having this conversation with them. The Pharisees overheard him saying this and said, What? Are you saying we're blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim to see, your guilt remains. What he's meaning is that he doesn't literally mean people who have spiritual sight lose it. Rather, that there are brilliant people out there, incredibly gifted, intelligent, successful church people, who when it comes to the reality of the gospel at at our great disadvantage... And that some of the most disadvantaged people, when it comes to the gospel, are the most advantaged. Because the gospel is that you're a sinner saved by God's sheer grace. And that's what your spiritual insight begins and it opens your eyes to recognize that you're a sinner and you're saved by his sheer grace. Because of what he's done through the cross. And that means that people who are saved are not necessarily good people. But the ones who admit they're not good and that they need a Savior and the people that are lost are not necessarily bad people. They just have pride. They're proud people. And the gospel comes along and says it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how successful or what a failure you are. We're all sinners and we're all saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Alone. We're all beggars needing grace. We have nothing to recommend ourselves to, of ourselves to God. It's all His sheer grace. And that is not as nearly difficult, humanly speaking, for a person who has failed or fallen to admit, but for a person who's a Pharisee, who's been told their whole lives how good they are, how brilliant they are, to admit that they're spiritually bankrupt, 
Jesus says, this blind man, because he's blind, because he's suffering, this is how God is going to work. So why is he suffering? That the works of God might be done in him. That's Jesus' answer. So generally speaking, unless trouble has come into our lives, it's pretty tough to come to grips with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the second thing he says is, are you saying we're blind? Because you say you're not blind, you are blind. You know, if you're having problems with an eye doctor, I know one. He lives in Akron. I can get you an appointment. I can slip you in. All right? Um, And you need to go to an eye doctor if you want to see. You might need some glasses. He might recommend optometry, ophthalmology, surgery, rather. He is an optometrist. But the reality is the doctor can help you. And there's a remedy for this. But you can only get the remedy if you admit you're having problems seeing. If you don't go to the eye doctor, you will go blind. What Jesus is saying here, the deepest blindness that I have is the blindness to my own blindness. There is no greater blindness than that. So let's do an eye exam. And if you do not know what I'm talking about at all, if you say, no, I'm not spiritually blind. I can see. I I can't look back at a time in which I was spiritually blind and now that I see. You need to go to the eye doctor, Jesus. Because he can cure this. He's got a prescription for you and wants to open your eyes. So how do we do that? Let's look at the blind man. We learn a lot from him. This man has been physically not seeing his entire life. But this whole sign, this whole miracle is about the fact that Jesus can cure spiritual blindness. So it's no surprise when Jesus says to him, You've seen him. He's the one who's speaking to you. I'm the son of man. And what does he do? He says, Lord, I believe. Then he worships. I'm so glad that John put in here, and he worshiped. He worshiped a physical human being, which no Jew would do. (laughs) Right? He's worshiping Jesus. I imagine kind of like Thomas, he just kind of fell down on his knees and said, my Lord, my God. It's the ultimate healing of his spiritual sight because worshiping the wrong thing is the ultimate cause of your blindness. And therefore, worshiping Jesus Christ, God himself, is the only way to cure that spiritual blindness. And we only can do that if we Trust in him alone. That's what belief means. Trusting in that work upon the cross for ourselves and worshiping. Because we all worship something. We all have something that drives us. Something which we feel is the most important thing in life. Where we derive our self-worth. We get our identity. We get our hope. And this guy was blind. And the, the... Improper response to this is not to say to yourself, well, okay, Gene, I get it. I'm going to clean up my life. 
I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to live like Jesus and then God will bless me and take me to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not spiritual sight. No, 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 no. You'll be getting more spiritually blind if you do it that way. Because when life hits you, you're not grounding it in the reality of the gospel. You're grounding it in the reality of how strong your faith is. And it's not the quality of our faith. It's the object of our faith. If you're trying to live an upstanding moral life, you're blind. If you live for your children, you'll be blind. You live for anything else, it will put you in spiritual darkness. And you can't see life clearly when we live life that way. Therefore, it's only when you begin to worship in such a way that God becomes the supreme beauty in your life. His love for you is the measure of your worth. He is the thing that's most satisfying to you. That's the only way to clear up your spiritual sight. Those are the glasses he wants to put on you. And you'll see yourself and you'll see his grace and you'll see reality. And it only happens when you see Jesus upon the cross for you, for what it is. And you don't just say, okay, I get it. I'll sing louder. I'll, I'll go to more church services. No, Jesus wants all of our lives, but our heart as well. When Jesus was on the cross, darkness came down. It was an absolute eclipse. But it wasn't just a physical darkness. For Jesus Christ, it was a spiritual darkness. He always saw the Father's face. And yet upon the cross, he was plunged into spiritual darkness. That's where John Newton was. He had it. He had the world. The whole world was his oyster. He was a slave ship captain in the 1700s, highly successful, highly wealthy, had wealth, sex, anything he wanted. He had. He just took that ship to Africa. They crammed it with Africans, and he brought them back, and he got paid well. It was a great gig for him until he met Christ. And he realized he was absolutely, utterly, spiritually bankrupt and had no sight whatsoever unlike William Wilberforce he just felt dragged into the, the ministry he became an Anglican minister and wanted to go to the poorest of the poorest section of London and minister where he did his whole life where was his friend William Cooper wrote him after him after him about God's amazing grace. And we're going to sing it at the end of our service today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I wonder where he got that. Right here. Just as Newton came to the realization that he was blind, that Jesus plunged into darkness, 
might become his light. Jesus did that for you. And then when you see him doing that for you, and you begin to say, Thank you, Lord. I believe you. Thank you. I trust in you alone. Thank you. That's worship. That's good. Let's do that today. And let's make that happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask as we come to this morning that you would help us recognize that our sight isn't as it should be. And that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ does our eyesight spiritually begin to clear up. And it's only through worship of you, Lord Jesus Christ, does our sight begin to clarify. We want to see more and more of you, Lord Jesus, and that you would show us your glory. We understand that the world that's really out there, and we know that it it won't happen unless we worship you and praise your holy name. So Lord, as we come to the table this day and we wrap up our time together this morning, that we pray your amazing grace would give us that sight so we too can also say collectively, I once was blind, but now I see. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.